And this morning, this passage that we come to is one that many of you are probably familiar with, especially if you have been to uh, a funeral. And uh, it's because this morning our text deals with losing someone you love. But before we get started, uh, I thought it might be helpful to talk about how losing someone we love can affect a person. And I want to do that by looking at two different people in history and how they responded to death and loss of a loved one. First, I want to start with a German philosopher who lived in the 19th century. He's best known for his critiques of traditional morality, religion, and philosophy. And his name was Nietzsche. When Nietzsche was just four years old, his father died of a brain disease. And this had a profound impact on Nietzsche. He later wrote that it led him to question the idea of a loving God who could allow such suffering in the world. As Nietzsche grew older, he became increasingly critical of Christianity and its emphasis on self-denial and otherworldly rewards. And he saw these teachings as a form of escapism that denied the value of this life and the importance of individual will and power. Nietzsche is probably most famous for his three-word quote that even if you don't know the word Nietzsche, you've probably heard this quote before. And that's, God is dead. He completely rejected the Christian idea of an afterlife. And instead, he championed the idea of a a life-affirming philosophy that just celebrated the joys and the struggles of existence in this world. Because to him, that's all there was ever going to be. So you might as well celebrate what you've got. Now, while his rejection of Christianity was influenced by many factors, his father's death was undoubtedly the most important factor in shaping his worldview. Now, again, you may be sitting here going, I've never heard of this guy before, but I want you to know that he has had one of the biggest impacts in thinking in our current society. Some of you might not even know it, but are subject to some of his thinking. I mean, the history of uh, philosophy and psychology since the early 20th century has sadly been impacted by him. Psychologists were deeply influenced by him, like Adler and Jung and Sigmund Freud, as well as poets and playwrights, George Bernard Shaw, William Butler Yeats, Yeats, sorry, Sadly, many theologians were also affected by his line of thinking as well. Tillich, Althusser, and Buber, just to name a few. So that's how he responded to death. But I want to look at another well-known atheist, author and academic, and his name was C.S. Lewis. And he experienced a profound change in his worldview after the death of his wife, Joy Davidman. At the time, Lewis was struggling with grief and a sense of meaninglessness, but he found that Christianity was the only worldview that could provide him the comfort and hope in the face of suffering 
and loss. As he began to explore Christianity more deeply, Lewis was struck by the idea of God's love and the promise of eternal life. He found that these concepts gave him a sense of purpose and meaning and helped him see his wife's death in a different light. Lewis wrote about his journey to faith in his book, Surprised by Joy, which I highly recommend for you to read. Um, But also his lesser known work called A Grief Observed, one in which he was didn't even publish it in his own name because he was concerned um, about the honesty in which he expresses in that book. But he describes how his experience of suffering and loss ultimately led him to a new understanding of the world and of himself. Through his conversion to Christianity, Lewis found a new sense of hope and purpose in the West or and went on to become one of the most influential Christian writers of the 20th century. Isn't it amazing how death can affect people in such dramatic ways? One rages against Christianity and the other becomes its biggest champion. That's why it's important for Paul to help the Thessalonian church. Paul wants them to understand how to respond to the inevitability of death in this life. That's also why it's important for us this morning. Because one of the things that I have seen either shipwreck or anchor a person's Christianity is how they responded to the death of a loved one. So let's read our scripture together this morning. It's a short passage. We'll put it up on the screen. Read it with me. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Amen. Paul here roots his consolation in the resurrection of Jesus and his coming. This morning, what I want to do, if you're taking notes, I'm, I'm going to walk us through this passage because, again, it's, it's often used in a setting in which you can't go into a whole lot of depth to unpack it. Um, so I want to unpack just what the text means first, and then I'm going to give you just a couple of points of application at the end. Okay, So we're going to just walk through verse by verse, unpack what's happening here, And then we'll take and and try to find a few places to land it in our lives today. 
Paul starts again with, with this consolation that Christians should have in the resurrection of Jesus. His, his resurrection is the, the, the paradigm of destiny of the deceased believers. Notice how Paul begins with a declaration of pastoral concern for the church. Brothers, we don't want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep. The statement implies that this is one of those areas where their understanding of the faith was deficient, right? If you are ignorant of something, it means you do not know. And and so Paul is coming alongside. Now we've, in the last couple of weeks, looked at things that they already knew, things that they were already doing well. And now Paul is getting to a place saying, hey, this is an area of deficiency, Again, this, this may have been the point in which he was run out of town and he only got to give them just a little bit of information and, and didn't, wasn't able to give them a full picture. And so because of this, because of this lack of understanding, it's, it's creating trouble for these Christians, especially as they see fellow Christians dying. Perhaps, as we're going to see, as kind of hinted at in this passage, through persecution, Right? What, what happens to them? So Paul, being the caring pastor that he is, he doesn't want them to be ignorant. He wants them to understand. And here he, the apostle reply, refers to the deceased using a euphemistic uh, term for those who fall asleep. But I want you to notice in in verse 16, he has no reservations about calling them the dead. Okay? This euphemistic way of speaking about the dead appears both in Jewish and Christian text and implies nothing about an intermediary state. Some have mistakenly concluded based off of this passage that that this this description for the dead implies that there is this soul sleep after death. This is one of the areas that me and Martin Luther disagree about. This is one of the places that I would disagree with a Jehovah Witness or a seven-day Adventist amongst a lot of others. Those are modern-day examples of people who make this mistake and, and believe this idea that when you die, your body and your soul sleep in the grave. Well, the New Testament teaching is clearly pointing to a conscious state of existence during the intermediary state. The deceased also here refers to those who are who sleep in Greek and, and in Latin uh, literature and inscriptions. That, that is often what was put uh, on the tomb. Those who sleep, right? You're going to your family's tomb to visit those who sleep. And for that reason, we should understand the term simply as a synonym for the dead. We don't need to read into it any more profound theological meaning other than that. This is a a common and universal way to speak of those who had died. Matter of fact, the word cemetery, it literally comes from a word that means a place to sleep. Uh, It's akin to the word dormitory, right? Where, Where kids would go and sleep before going back to classes. So Paul gives the the reason for writing this. He doesn't want the Thessalonians to be ignorant about the destiny of these deceased Christians. So that they may not grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. 
Notice that the apostle in no way prohibits grief in the face of death. He's not saying, don't grieve. You shouldn't grieve. He's saying you shouldn't grieve as those who have no hope. Paul's only advising the grief should not be overwhelming. Because when that's the case, we, we are no different than anyone else. Especially those who have no hope. And the rest here is a reference to those who uh, are not Christians. The, the ones that he called outsiders previously in our chapter. The Gentile unbelievers are, are further described in this verse as those who have no hope. And I want you to understand this is not some kind of judgment by Paul. This is a statement of fact by Paul. One of the Greek philosophers reflected during this time on the absence of hope saying, hope, hopes are for the living, the dead are without hope. And both Greek and Latin inscriptions have been found that read, I was, I was not, I was, I am not, I care not. Right? This is the common view in this culture that, that once you die, that's it. Right? So what hope would they have at a funeral? None. Because this person just ceased to exist. And as the Christians in Thessalonica faced death, the, the death of those whom they love, they are called not to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. In other words, you are to be countercultural. That, that's the way everyone around you is acting. You are to be different. Their grief should be tempered and informed by the hope that they held based on the resurrection of Christ and, and the promise of his coming. That the apostles preached hope in a world where even hope seems to have flown out the window. If someone tries to use Paul's words here to promote a, a stoic apathy, right? Or, or an unfeeling toughness among Christians, they are misinterpreting Paul's message completely. It's true that Paul advises against giving into overwhelming grief when we lose loved ones, since that can lead to us rebelling against God. However, he doesn't mean we should suppress our emotions entirely and, and become unfeeling robots that just walk around and go, well, he's in heaven now. Praise God. Let's go move on. What's next? What, what we got to do on the agenda, right? That, that's not what he's encouraging here. That, that's a stoic mentality. That is not a Christian mentality. Instead, we should strive to control our grief so that it doesn't consume us while still allowing ourselves to experience the natural sadness and pain that comes with a loss. I love how the every moment holy author puts it when he says, for joy that denies sorrow is neither hard won nor true nor eternal. It is not real joy at all. In sorrow that refuses to make space for the return of joy and hope in the end becomes nothing more than a temple for the worship of my own woundedness. Let me read that to you again. For, for joy that denies sorrow. Is neither hard won nor true. Nor eternal. 
It is not real joy at all. And sorrow that refuses to make space for the return of joy and hope in the end becomes nothing more than a temple for the worship of my own woundedness. It's sad that so many people live in their own temple of woundedness. He goes on in verse 14. The reason why Christians should not despair in the face of death as those who have no hope is found in the fundamental confession of the church. This, this is a, a kind of a, an early creed, if you will, within the Christian church. We believe that Jesus died and rose again. Right? This is a confession that Christians would make to one another. And, and Paul is saying we need to anchor this into this creed, into this confession that we have. This is where our hope comes from, that Jesus died and rose again. Upon this foundation was built the hope in the resurrection of the dead. And we see this over and over and over again in the the apostles' teaching. The resurrection of Jesus is put forward as the guarantee of the resurrection of the believers. And one commentator notes, so intimately connected are these events in the history of salvation that Paul could even dare to proclaim to the Corinthians that denial of the resurrection of the dead constituted a de facto denial of the resurrection of Christ. In other words, if you didn't believe in the resurrection of believers, Paul's saying you don't really believe in the resurrection of Christ and you have no gospel at all. The hope in the resurrection of believers is based on the resurrection of Christ. An event that took place or that will take place in union with Jesus. In death, we as believers are not separated from Jesus. This phrase then becomes uh, an, an affirmation that those who die as Christians do not cease to exist between the time of their death and the resurrection. No, no our souls go to be with Jesus. Our body goes into the ground. But our soul is with Jesus. Longing for the day that they are reunited at the resurrection. In verse 15 we see this teaching is introduced with the solemn. According to the Lord's own words. Or Lord's own word we tell you. At the start Paul is is clarifying that the teaching that follows is inspired by the Lord Jesus. Right? When he says the word of the Lord... And for that reason, it's authoritative for the church because this is the words of Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, the word of the Lord was the typical designation of a prophetic oracle. And for this reason, we might conclude that the author is about to present some prophecy that was given through a Christian prophet such as Silas. But but in the New Testament, the word of the Lord is not used this way. Instead of designating that which the Lord says through prophetic inspiration, the phrase refers to the message of the gospel that is proclaimed or to the teaching that was given by the Lord Jesus during his earthly ministry. Whether or not this teaching was incorporated into the gospels or not. Most likely Paul has in mind a teaching that they had received from the Lord himself as part of the Christian tradition. The declarations that we find here in verses 15 through 17 
corresponds in many ways with Matthew 24, 29 through 31, and 40 through 41. This is, this is the most probable source of Jesus' eschatology, or uh, his, his belief about end times, if you will. Uh, this, this discourse that he gives in Matthew chapter 24. And the teaching is not presented in the original form. It's kind of summarized here and clarified in light of the situation the apostle is addressing to the Thessalonians. The teaching that the Lord gave and that the apostle now presents to the Thessalonians is that we who are still alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. Now the word translated, we who are left, appears over and over again in literature of this era. And it refers to those who had survived a tragedy that left others dead. Though the word doesn't always have to convey that meaning. That is the general sense in which these words are used. Again, this is kind of a a hint here implying that these Christians that have died in Thessalonica died due to persecution. Right, And so Paul is now writing to those who are left, those who did not die. The apostle states emphatically that those who survive until the coming of the Lord will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep or those who have already died. And for some reason or other, the Thessalonians needed to know that at the time of the Lord's coming, the living believers would not precede the dead. Most likely, the Thessalonians understood that only the living would have the honor of going out to meet the Lord in his royal and triumphant return. And the apostle responds by saying that the dead will rise first and will have this place of honor in the procession. The dead in Christ will in no way be excluded from this grand event. This this grand celebration that will surround the return of the Lord, but will enjoy instead actually a place of honor. Recognition of this fact would give the living believers great comfort in their grief. Now, Paul referred to the coming of the Lord as his return or glorious coming. This was commonly a commonly used word that would be used referring to the return of a deity Or an official visit of a sovereign to a city, which they themselves were often considered deities. An an imperial visit was an event of of great pomp and circumstance, right? These, These were magnificent celebrations. There would be rich banquets. Speeches would be given. Um, they, there would be all these visits to, to, the, the local temple and to government places. There would be uh, donations by the rich. There would be celebrations of games, sacrifices, statues would be dedicated. Money was even minted sometimes to commemorate the event. It was, it was that big a deal, right? That, that's the word Paul is using here about Jesus's return. That this idea of this deity or this uh, leader coming to a city and, and there being this huge celebration, this huge pomp and circumstance. And as we'll see in a minute in verse 17, the, the officials and a multitude of people would head out of the city to receive the one who came all dressed with special clothing. In other words, 
they knew, hey, he's coming tomorrow. But they didn't sit at the edge of town waiting for him to come. If they knew he was coming tomorrow, they would leave out early and meet him halfway or, or wherever, but, but meet him in the procession and, and join him in all of the parade into town. Right? That, that's the picture of what's happening here. That's what Paul wants the believers to have in mind here. When we talk about Jesus' return, And Paul here is telling the Thessalonians that all Christians, both the living and the dead, will participate in going out to meet King Jesus. Far from being a secret event, the coming of the Lord will occur amid a great amount of noise as God gives his order for the dead to be raised, right? First, there will be a, a loud command, which is a, a cry or a command that must be obeyed. Second, the, the royal return of the Lord is accompanied by the voice of an archangel. Third, great sound uh, uh, the, at this event. They'll, they'll have trumpets just calling, announcing the Lord. Now, the trumpet, we think about trumpets and we think about musical instruments and you know, maybe jazz bands or whatever. But during this era, the, the trumpet was reserved for military exercises, cultic events, funeral possessions, processions. In the Roman army, nothing happened without sounding a trumpet. According to the Old Testament, the trumpet of God would announce the coming of the day of the Lord in Joel 2.1. And the time when the dispersed People of God would be gathered and God would bring them salvation in Isaiah 27, 13 and Zechariah 9, 14 through 16. Not, not only in our text, but also in 1 Corinthians 15, 52, the trumpet of God announces or commands the resurrection of the dead. While in Matthew 24, 31, the trumpet of God calls together the dispersed people of God. By means of these events, God gives his command and the dead in Christ rise first. And not all the dead will be rise, raised at this time, but only those who have entered into a relationship with Christ before their death. The point Paul wished to drive home to the Thessalonians, however, is not simply that the dead in Christ will rise, but that this event will occur first. The dead will not remain in their tombs and lose the opportunity of going out to receive King Jesus. But before the grand entourage goes out, they will be raised. They will have a place of privilege, if not preeminence, in this grand procession, which is described in the following verse. Verse 17, after the resurrection, the, the living believers will be joined with those who are raised and together they will go out in procession to meet their sovereign at the time of his return. This grand event is described in the following manner. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds and meet the Lord in the air. Once again, Paul emphasizes the order of events. The dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them. And the purpose of this meeting in the clouds underlines this divine human encounter to meet the Lord in the air. 
To meet was almost a technical term that described the custom of sending that delegation outside of the city to receive a dignitary who was on his way to town. Now the result of this whole process of resurrection, catching away, and meeting is described in the final sentence. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Although the soul of the believer is united with the Lord at the time of death, the security the Thessalonians needed was that the dead in their community would not be separated from the Lord in his glorious coming and beyond. Now what the apostle does not explain at this point is where they will be with the Lord forever. But if the custom forms the background of the previous verse, that of going out and meeting the visiting dignitary, it implies that the delegation that goes out will return with the one who comes, right? So the officials of the city go out to meet the king that is coming. Where they end up is the city. And since no other explanation is offered of the events after the meeting, we can assume that the Thessalonians would have understood that the Lord would continue his return until he arrived at the final destination of earth. But the pastoral concern of Paul was not to explain the details of Christian eschatology, but rather to console members of the church in their moment of grief, as the final verse once again clarifies. This section concludes as it began in verse 18 on a pastoral note. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. The Thessalonians grieved profoundly over the death of some of their community. But the hope that the dead would not be excluded from the great meeting with the Lord was a reality that would bring them great comfort. The the truth of the Lord, verse 15, opens the door to true comfort. But notice that Paul doesn't put himself forward as the one who comforts the grieving. Rather, he urges the members of the church to use these words to comfort each other. Now that we have an understanding, hopefully a little bit better of this passage, I just want to turn to a couple of ways of application. Now, before I start, I want to point out that this passage has suffered many interpretive abuses over the centuries. Pastors, commentators, scholars have tried to mine this passage for end-time eschatology. The whole time missing the point that this was never Paul's ultimate intention. I know I say it all the time, but context is king. This, This teaching by Paul was put forward to comfort those in grief, not to teach a master class on eschatology and what's going to happen in end times in the last days. He's trying to console people who are grieving. And he does this by connecting the confession of the creed, Jesus died and rose again, with the reality of the resurrection of the dead in Christ. These verses should not be used as stuff of speculative prophecy, Or writing fictional books about end times. This text is better located at the graveside. In the funeral home. At the memorial service. 
And this is the first point of application we can take from this text. Paul is placing it in the hands of each believer to comfort others in their time of greatest sorrow. This passage, first and foremost, is about instilling hope. The the picture presented here is of a a royal coming of Jesus Christ. The, The church is official as the official delegation goes out to meet him with the dead heading up the procession as those most honored one coming the one coming is envisioned which will unite the coming king with his subjects both the living and the dead together what a glorious hope when we are grieving properly the members of the church are using these words to comfort each other when we are grieving properly the members of the church are using words these words to comfort each other. But conversely, when we are not grieving correctly, we isolate ourselves. And this goes both for the one grieving the loss and for the church family. Sometimes I've seen people not know what to say or do in the church when someone has a sudden death. And so they just kind of shrink back and fail to go and minister to those who are grieving. And that's wrong. But I've also seen many occasions where the one who is grieving retreats and isolates themselves. Like the quote earlier, they create a temple for the worship of their own woundedness. And this is wrong too. If you're taking notes, write this down. Grieving well is a group project. Grieving well is a group project. Don't ever grieve in isolation. Don't try to be the hero and deal with it on your own. There's only one hero, and his name is Jesus. Stop trying to be the hero. And don't fake it thinking that you're propping up God's greatness. I've seen this so many times. People... You know that they're suffering. You know that they're hurting. But they come to church and, oh, God's good. Everything's wonderful. And they feel like they have to lie and prop up how they're feeling and prop up the goodness of God. The gospel doesn't need to be propped up by you faking it. The gospel is actually revealed when you run to God and other believers for help. What better way to preach the gospel than that? Second, death is universal, which is why the gospel you preach matters. Last I checked, the statistics are still 100% for the death rate of human beings. We're all in this room going to die if the Lord tarries. So with that ugly fact out of the way, let me turn to the second part of my point. The gospel you preach matters. You see, we're always preaching to ourselves some kind of gospel. As one person put it, no other person in the world is more influential in your life than you. Because no one talks to you more than you do. 
We are all talking to ourselves. Most of us simply learn to not move our lips when we do, right? Because we don't want people to think we're crazy, right? You start talking to yourself and then answering yourself, people are going to, you know, start getting some rubber jackets for you and padded rooms. But, but you're always preaching something to yourself. We're, we're always trying to theologize uh, our, our interpretation of the facts of our experience. Because human beings made in the image of God do not live their life based on the facts of their experience. But instead based on their interpretation of the facts of the, their experience. Let me say that again. Human beings made in the image of God do not live their life based on the facts of their experience. Some of you here, I I live by the facts. No, you don't. None of you do. I don't. We live our lives based on how we interpret those facts. All of us have ideas and preconceived notions. We all have previous experiences that we filter the facts through. That's why the way we interpret life is important. That's why the gospel we preach to ourselves is so important. And what this often means is that your confessional theology doesn't match your practical or applied theology. Your confessed theology often does not match your spontaneous interpretation of the facts day to day. And this is where discipleship and biblical counseling comes in. Because many of us stand up here or or would stand up here on a Sunday and, and confess something to be true. Yet when we leave by Monday, our actions are saying something completely different. For instance, I see this all the time, counseling couples. They they come and they're struggling. They're mad with one another and they're having a hard time with one another. And I ask them, do you believe the Bible is the word of God? Husband says, yes, yes, I I believe the Bible is the word of God. Wife, yes, of course, I believe the Bible is the word of God. Should that be our standard for marriage? God designed marriage. God created marriage. Should we do marriage the way God teaches us to do marriage? Of course. That's not why we're here. We're here because we have some problems, right, that we need to deal with. And she starts launching off or he starts launching off into this long laundry list of problems and and why they can't trust one another. And I say, okay, great. Let's turn to Philippians 4, 8. And I read with them, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable... If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And I may ask the couple, should we follow that verse? Are are you thinking the best of your husband right now? Right? They're fighting. The husband realizes it. He brings home flowers. The wife's like, what does he want? He wants something. What has he done? He's done something. Right? She's she's taken the facts of him bringing home flowers and then interpreted those facts 
through her own skewed way of thinking. So they launch off in all these reasons why. Well, I, I can't trust him. I can't give him the benefit of the doubt. She's letting that mistrust become the lens for which she interprets all the facts in their marriage. Here's another example, a little bit more humorous. That one, that last one seemed to hit a little close to home. Most of you know Brian, who leads our prayer ministry. He's normally the one week in and week out up here leading us in corporate prayer. And he's having some tests done at Shands that will determine the best way for the doctors to treat him moving forward. And this will require him to be in the hospital for a week straight for evaluation. And as you can imagine, his sons, especially his youngest, are they're nervous. You, you could even say anxious. Uh, but last Friday, he went down for an MRI, and Melissa got to take the boys on a quick tour of the hospital while Brian was getting the MRI to kind of see if that would, you know, maybe put them at ease a little bit, see the hospital, see the, the quality of the hospital and how impressive the hospital is. And, man, their youngest son, he was so impressed after walking him around, it, it seemed to reduce his anxiety, um, and, and it seemed to have start subsiding some. So what do you think the fact was that helped him? That, that Shans has a world-class doctors? That they have cutting-edge equipment, the best of the best? That they're on the forefront of research, right? These are all facts that would help me. That would help me calm down, right? No, it was the fact that they had an entire Wendy's inside of the hospital. <laughs> I guess his little mind interpreted, interpreted that fact to mean that, the, that this hospital had its act together and that we could trust them. No matter what you say, none of you live purely off facts. We all live our life off our interpretation of of the facts that have been given. This is why Nietzsche went one way and Lewis went the opposite way when being faced with the same fact of what seemed to be a senseless death. Guys, if the enemy can capture our hearts, he will happily let us have our orthodox systematic theology. If he can capture our hearts, he will happily let us have our orthodox systematic theology. As long as we don't live what the Bible teaches, he could care less if we shout that we believe the Bible is the word of God. Your spontaneous theology is actually what is shaping your life. Not your confessed theology. Now your confessed theology should inform your applied theology. But your spontaneous theology is what's really shaping your life. So when it comes to grief, we are never just grieving the loss of the person. We're also grieving the way we are grieving the loss of the person. This is why what you are preaching to yourself moment to moment is so important. Especially, especially guys, when you're grieving the loss of a loved one. 
Good theology doesn't just define who God is. Good theology redefines who you are as a child of God. Now let me give you two dangers if you forget who you are in your grief. First is the danger to doubt God. And let me clarify here. When I say doubt God, what I mean by that is you doubt his judgment. You doubt his judgment. Never allow your experience to interpret who God is. If you entertain that God is not good, it will weaken your trust. And the danger is you don't go to the people you don't trust. So you stop running to God because you don't trust him anymore. The second danger is selfishness. The temptation to make everything about you. Some of you may have been here. Some of you may have loved ones who still live here that have lost a loved one but cannot move forward because everything that happened was really not even about the loved one. It was about them. You find yourself saying or thinking, no one has it as bad as I do. No one has lost as many people as I've lost. No one could possibly understand my pain. This is the danger of turning in to ourselves. And if you're focused on yourself, you will never be able to deal with uncontrollable loss and suffering. Because it's outside of your control by definition. It's it's coming, it's going to happen, and you can't control it. This morning in closing... I want to encourage you to do three things. First, I want you to fix your eyes on the beauty of the Lord. Paul is encouraging the church here to envision their coming king. Their their returning triumphal savior. And that meeting in the air if you're struggling this morning with a loss fix your eyes on the beauty of the Lord second remind yourself that you are a child of God again good theology redefines who you are in relation to God and third Live based on your identity in God. Not solely your interpretations of the facts. Focus on who you are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you for the comfort that it brings. We thank you for the pastoral care we see here from Paul. Lord, I know that in this room, death and loss has touched every single person. And if not,
because of their age, it will soon. And Lord, I pray that we would hide the truths of these passages deep within our hearts so that when that day comes, we can recall them, Lord. But Lord, I also pray that we would do as Paul says and we would encourage one another with these words. So even in those times when grief does overcome us and we tend to forget the gospel that we should be preaching to ourselves, 